five weeks of that song. Can you wait? <laughs> now, each week is going to have a different scenario, so it's not all that same uh, fat guy in a yoga mat. Um, any of you relate to that? Have a coworker or a friend that's, you know, anyway, don't put your hands up. Um, but anyway, five weeks of that song, so I think the heart is by the end of the five weeks, we're going to be singing that little ditty and, and be focused on staying positive. It's really kind of the heart of this series, the upside of this series, the positive way to say this series. Uh, what this series, I'm excited about this series. We're going to be five weeks in it, and I believe, here's, as I was working on this this week, this, this is a thought that hit me. This just might be, has the potential to be the most practical and relevant message series we, I have ever preached here at Bethany. Now, I don't say, I don't say it's going to be the best message. I don't say it's one that's going to stir your heart the most. I don't, I don't think that necessarily. I hope it is. But I, what I mean by practical, I believe this is going to be the one that um, this subject touches 100% of you in this room. No one's left out of this, and we'll talk about what this subject is in a minute. Um, you all have opinions on it, and you uh, are wrestling with it, and you're figuring out how to avoid it, or how to engage it, or how to interact with it. And so our heart of this series has been to be very Monday morning practical, because it touches us all. Let's just not talk ideals and theory. Let's open up the scriptures and say, what does God want from me, and how is he going to help me on Monday morning as I engage my coworkers, as I walk with my family, et cetera? Um, so what is it? What, is it? what are we talking about? Well, I'll tell a story. Um, as I tell this story, I think you can relate to your own story, that you may, social media, maybe for some of you, if you're not on social media, maybe it's a conversation you had at a family dinner table or at a restaurant or, or maybe something you heard in public or you watched on the news or you caught on ESPN, but here's, here's how uh, it, it unfolded for me, just one, one of many stories I could tell. Uh, it happened last, uh, last summer-ish, and I uh, follow a guy by the name of Perry Noble on social media. Perry Noble was a pastor in Anderson, South Carolina, he's actually launching a new church right now, uh, but he was a pastor of New Spring Church, which was one of the largest churches in North America. Uh, it had gone over 30,000 people. It had, uh, it, it had launched from one campus to multiple campus. They basically took over all of South Carolina and kind of were the church, one of the churches, prevalent churches in the South. Um, it, f- two years ago or so, he, Perry Noble was just kind of overnight dismissed by his elder board from the church, fired, let go. So all these rumors start kicking up. Up. And you can imagine as you're reading social media, everyone has opinions. No one really knew, but everyone thought they knew what happened to Perry Noble. About a year, so now we're talking last summerish. I am, um, he had gone kind of dark. I haven't heard a lot from him. And all of a sudden, one day on social media, I see this thing pop. I'm like, oh, there's Perry. And so if you guys are familiar with Facebook Live, so it's that, that's what I'm watching. It's like, you know, you hold that camera out, it's like that selfie shot, and he's talking to the camera. And then all the comments are rolling down below. So he goes, you've experienced it, kind of know. Uh, what that is. And so Perry's beginning to tell his story of what happened. Uh, turns out what happened is he was dismissed by the elders because he had an alcohol problem. Uh, an alcohol problem that he couldn't quite bring under control and it was beginning to influence uh, his family, his, uh, his even, even at work. And so they said, ah, Perry, enough is enough. So they dismissed him and let him go. So he's talking about this. He's talking about the heart of it, the pain of it, the agony of it. In the process of talking about the alcohol problem uh, and his dismissal, he also shared that his wife uh, and his daughter left. Uh, so his marriage has uh, also fallen apart. And then he checked into rehab out in Arizona. So he flies out to Arizona, and he's recounting and retelling his story to really, in a lot of ways, I'm listening to this thinking, man, 
I'm, I'm drawn in. My heart's being touched. Thinking, Thanks for being vulnerable, Perry. Uh, it's, it's encouraging my heart. And then he says, uh, as he talks about his journey in Arizona, that when he checks into rehab, it was hell on earth is the way he described. It was the hardest thing he ever done. If you can imagine one of the largest churches in North America, suddenly you're dismissed and all the, the shame that's involved in that and the, the, and the realizing he's let so many people down and, and just the hurt and the pain. Not only that, but his wife is leaving him and, and he just feels like life is done. So that's what he decides to do. He decides to end his life. Uh, so he actually bought a plane ticket to go back to Anderson, South Carolina. He's telling all this story and he's going to fly, but check himself out of rehab, fly back and end his life and bring this whole thing to a chapter of the book is done. So as he's talking about this, and then he begins to talk about the hope and what led him out of that and why he stayed and what, what happened, there's these comments down below. And here's what I read. <laughs> I read, this guy says, the post says, it would have been better off if you had, in other words, killed yourself. The church would be far better off without false teachers like you. I'm sitting here, my jaw just flat out hits. I mean, I still remember where I was sitting. I'm like, who says that? More than that, I began to think, man, why do you think that that's okay to say? Even if Perry Noble is an absolute, total false teacher, even if what he has done is completely whatever, why do you say that? That's the series. We've all been there. Now, we can throw stones at that guy, at that person, yet in throwing stones at them, do you know what happens? What happens? We become that person. It's this vicious cycle. That's what we're going to talk about. We live right now in a corrosive, divisive, disrespectful time. I mean, you don't need to go on Facebook to figure this out or Instagram. You can go sit with your kids at the school cafeteria. Middle school, high school, just sit down and listen. You can go home this afternoon and turn on the news. I pick your poison. I don't care if you're conservative or you're liberal. Turn on CNN or Fox. BBC, I don't care what you pick, you're going to hear corrosive and divisive and comments that divide, not bring together. Go sit at the diner or the restaurant this afternoon for lunch and just listen to the conversations around you. Or scroll through social media, pull it out right now and look at it. Sit in these contexts and mention things like AR-15s. Doesn't matter where you're at in the spectrum, someone's going to have an opinion for you. Talk about McDonald's, Tiger Woods, Donald Trump, transgender, LeVar Ball, abortion, immunization, or Tide Pods. Just talk about it. And the people around you have opinions, have ideas. They'll tell you what's right and they'll tell you what's wrong. And they do it oftentimes in a way that empathy is in short supply. We're going to talk about this. There's a study that in the coming weeks, there's a study out of the University of Michigan from 1979 to 2009 that has been studying college students for this, it's this huge, comprehensive, overtime study. And what they're beginning to discover, and they discovered in that study, is empathy has dropped 40%, measured by their statistics, 40% in our culture. Now, if you look to the people around you, go ahead and do it. Just take some time. Look to the people beside you. Say hello, if you haven't already. Some of you have your arm around them. Give them a kiss if you want. Say hi. Look to the people in the front or behind you. Uh, say hello. Get a good look at them. Now, even if that person is your best friend, even if that person is your son or your daughter, your husband or your wife, the reality is we perceive the world differently. We look at the world through a different lens. 
We use different words and different language. I mean, my kids are saying things that I'm like, what does that mean? I mean, it's, they're teenagers now. I'm feeling old. I mean, it's just kind of what happens, right? I'm like, man, what are you guys talking about? Um, we don't have the same values. We don't have the same priorities. We don't have the same family backgrounds. We're not all at the same level of maturity or the same level of emotional awareness. Some people walk in this room and their radar is up and they see the person. Oh my goodness, they're off all by themselves. I should go sit with them. Oh, look, it looks like they were crying. Others of you walk in this room are like, oh, are there people in here? We aren't all at the same place. And that's reality of life, and that's, that's, that's the thing. So the question becomes, how do we interact with one another? How do I hold my truth and let you hold yours? How do I love people? How do I, more than that, I think most of you in this room truly care about people, and you want to influence someone else, you want to influence your kids. You want to influence your coworkers. You want to make a difference in life. How do I do that without going to war? Because, man, as soon as I start talking about my opinion on something, <laughs> it can bring the guns out. So this series is going to be Monday morning practical. So we're going to push through this entire series. And we're going to do this morning. That's the series. I want to do this morning. I want to start with a principle that I think we're going to talk to those of you in the room that are followers of Jesus. Now, if you're here and you're saying, well, I'm not a follower of Jesus, I want to just say, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being brave. Thanks for stepping in. I hope you're encouraged this morning. I hope you can kind of pull some things out. Uh, but ultimately this morning, I want to really talk to those of you who are followers of Jesus, and I want to talk about this one very clear truth. This is going to overarch the entire series. Something has gone terribly wrong when our passion for truth overrides our compassion for people. Let this sink in. And I'm going to read it with now the parentheses, because I left that word out. Because some of you, this, this will, I think, if I say it this way, my, my hope is it creates some tension for you. And I'm going to step into this tension. Something has gone terribly wrong when our passion for God overrides our compassion for people. Is that possible? Some of you look at that and say, Adam, come on. <laughs> is that possible? To have so much passion for God that it overrides how you handle and interact with others. So let's talk about that. That's what we're going to say is, how do we handle truth? When I have truth, when I have what's right and what's wrong, ultimately, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I have a relationship with the creator God of the universe. And isn't the church's mission to go out into all the world and help others have a relationship with the God of the universe? So we're going to have to engage people at some level with truth. How do we do it where it doesn't override our compassion for people? Here's where we're going to start. Our memory verse, um, though some of you are in the known journal, if you have the known journal, we're on page 83 this morning. Um, that's that journal. For those of you who don't know, it's a journal that has our reading plan in it, and it gives you a place to take notes on this message, and then it gives you some passages with some questions to get your kind of spur your mind into thinking to meet God for your one-on-one, -on -one, you and him, uh, throughout the week. Uh, in that plan, in that plan, uh, I'll say if you don't have one, I'd say go out and grab one, but they're gone. The new ones will be here in about four to five weeks. I'm all excited for that. But we do have the pamphlets, at least have the plan. And in that pamphlet, in the plan, there are memory verses. Um, some of you, I know, memorize this as a family. Some of you memorize this just with some friends or in your small group. This month, April, the memory verse is this. Here it is, Matthew 22, 37 to 39. A religious leader comes to Jesus, and he's like, they're trying to trip Jesus up trying to get Jesus to contradict the law, because if they can get him to contradict the law, then they got him, and they can say, see, he's really not the son of God. So they come and they ask him the question, what is the most important commandment, Jesus? Jesus replied, 
You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. The gospel writer Mark adds all your strength. This is the first and what commandment? This is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus says. A, second is equally important. This is interesting, equally important. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. But ultimately, Jesus says, the first is love God. Second, love, love people. Love God, love people. Now, I want to kind of flesh this out a little bit with another um, writer. His name is Paul, the Apostle Paul. He writes to a church in Galatia, letter to the Galatians. That's what this is if you're not familiar with the Bible. In writing, he opens up in chapter 1, I'm moving to chapter 2, and he tells his own story. He says, listen, I was named Saul, and I, I, my whole mission in life, I, had a, I basically had a PhD in religion, and I was zealous, I was passionate for, for God and his word and his law, and anyone who began to associate themselves with Jesus Jesus, they were being put to death, and I was a part of it, and I was going to take them all out. Well, then I meet Jesus, and in meeting Jesus, he then talks about in Galatians, he actually then spends three years out in the wilderness with Jesus, and then he comes back into town and basically becomes an advocate for the church of Jesus Christ and starts planting churches everywhere. So here he is, he's he's writing to this church in Galatia, and he says he's going to get into the same discussion Jesus was in. Look at it. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Here it is. One command. What's he going to say? What do you think? Here it comes. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he adds this to it, but if you are always biting and devouring, this, I put this, I was going to stop it at love your neighbor as yourself, but I couldn't leave this next verse out. Verse 15. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. So love God, love people. Paul says, okay, the greatest commandment, forget, let's just leave love God off. Let's love people. If you love people, it's a summation of the entire law. Now you say, well, now wait a minute, Paul. You clearly didn't pay attention to Jesus for those three years out in the desert. Were you listening? Because Jesus himself said the greatest commandment is love him. Well, let's, let's push in with another friend of Jesus, John. John was the disciple that Jesus loved. That's how he describes himself. John was the, the guy on earth, the physical human being on earth that was closer to Jesus than anyone else. John was the guy that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, J- J- Jesus is trying to figure out who's going to take care of my earthly mother, Mary. So he looks at John and says, John, take care of my mom. John was close with Jesus. John writes, dear friends, since God loves us that much, that much, he, if you go back and read, he's talking about the gospel message of Jesus Christ. If you're not familiar with that, it's the message that Jesus was the living son of God. He came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He died a terrible death. He hung on a cross to pay a price for our sins, which we talked about last week in Easter. He paid that price. The curtain is ripped. And we talked about that last week. And we can now step into a relationship with God because of what he has done through his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, Jesus, look, God looks at me as though I'm as I'm, I'm sinless, as though I'm perfect, as though I'm righteous, because I put my simple trust in Jesus. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. This is a theme all throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, the, the entire writings of the back part of our Bible called the New Testament. This is a theme. Forgiven much, love much. Forgiven much, love much. When you understand what Jesus has done for you, the natural response is to love others. So we could kind of pause right there and say, okay, that's why Paul says that. Well, let's step even further. Look at John's next sentence. Let me read it all as it flows. Dear friends, 
Since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God. Period. Pause there. What? John, what are you saying? Well, let me ask you this question. Do you love God? Have you had an experience with him? Some of you go, oh yeah, Adam, I love God. Man, this morning, that worship music, it moved me. I loved it. Like I, was, I was crying. It was so powerful. I remember, I even had my hands in the air. I'm like, I'm like, oh, yeah, right? Some of you go, nothing wrong with that. That's awesome. Glad you guys do that. Some of you go, yeah, Adam, man, my prayer life right now, oh, I, me and God, God and I, we are like this. I mean, God and I, man, I'm right now in my quiet time. I'm, I'm eating stuff up. And, man, God and I, man, I just feel so close with him. Others of you say, well, man, I'm reading this book right now. Oh, what I'm learning and challenging him. I'm getting to know God. Problem is, You've never seen him. You know, it's really easy to say of my wife, I love Tanya Brahm. She is the greatest wife in the entire planet. She's the most beautiful woman I've ever laid my eyes on. She's the greatest mother mothers will ever know. I mean, she is like, she is a rock star. She is everything to me. She is, and then I walk home after a long, hard day, after she's had a long, hard day, and we engage one another. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's really easy to say you love someone when you never interact with them, when you never see them, when you never walk with them. It's a whole other story to say, I love you, but I'm going to still walk with you and be with you even when it's messy. John is saying, you have never seen God. None of you have ever seen him. But here's the cool thing. Every human being is created in the image of God. Let's go a step further. If you're a follower of Jesus, guess where God is right now? This is so cool. Where is he? He's inside of you. So if you look again to that person to the right or the left, and they're a follower of Jesus, you ever want to give God a hug? Go give him a big hug. You ever want to give God a high five? There he is. Give him a high five. You ever want to give God a big, wet, sloppy kiss? Go ahead. If you're married, have at it. I mean, it's like, here it is. This is God in the flesh. Right now, he's living in you. So I think that's what John's saying. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we also ought to love each other because keep in mind, you've never seen God, but, transition, but if we love each other, God lives in us, there he is, we love, we love each other, therefore we love God, and, and his love is brought to full expression in us. Whew. That's why Paul says, I'll sum the whole commandment up with this, love your neighbors yourself, because if you can show me love for your neighbor, you can show me love for God. I think that's why Paul says it. Now, I want to share how I've kind of grown in this. Um, I wasn't always here, to be honest with you. I was a young punk out of college, newly married, not married long, have two, two uh, little rugrats running around, two little boys that are now Luke and Zach. Some of you know them. They're now teenagers, so this was way back. Um, and I am, I'm full of, as any college student is when they got to college, they're full of ideas. They're loaded up with ideas and ideologies, and this is how life should be. And then you go live life, and you're like, oh. I didn't quite, okay, you got to rethink some things. So I'm in the process of rethinking some things, and I'm, I'm struggling to fit into my role, I'm struggling to fit in as a husband, I'm struggling to fit in as a dad, what does all this look like, how does it all work together, and someone comes along to me and says to me, Adam, have you ever read so-and-so's book? No, I haven't. Now, this so-and-so that I decided to read, that he encouraged me to read, is a Reformed theologian, a Reformed thinker. Now, I'm going to pause here, so I, I want to mention this because it's relevant to the story, but some of you go, well, 
What is a Reformed thinker? A Reformed theologian starts with God. When they start with their theology, versus an Arminian theologian would start with man. And it's just a very simplistic overview here, so don't hold me too tight to all this. So, so he starts with God, and the Reformed thinkers, to the very core, there's two truths about them that make them who they are. They look at this high, grand, majestic view of God. They're like, man, God is all, and God's all sovereign. God's in control of everything. God's in, it's all God. And solo scriptura is what they call it. It's a Latin phrase. Basically, it means this scripture right here is the very word of God, and we are going to love it and hunger after it and go after it. And man, it is, so that's their passion. So I'm given this book, and it suddenly, man, pieces start falling in place. It, it answers some questions in marriage, it, and it meant so much to me. I went and read 10 of this guy's books, and everyone else associated with him. In fact, I would still say that book that I was given was still, if you ask me, what's the greatest book, Adam, that you've ever read that's influenced your life outside of the Bible, it was that book, that very first book. Now, I'm sitting down in a meeting, a touchpoint meeting with the lead pastor of the church. And he's been beginning to watch this form in me. He's seeing the passion come up. If you talk to anyone that heard me preach, and you still may say this, how, how would you describe Adam's preaching? It was one thing, passion for God. So Doug, a friend, someone who's been in ministry for 25 years, someone who's been burned and hurt and, and has bled for people, someone who loved people well, looked at me in this touchpoint meeting. It was a, we had it every two weeks or so. And he said, Adam, as this meeting wraps up, can I just personally step into something? Can I challenge you to be so careful with Reformed theology? And I said, yeah, of course. Why? My experience has been, as a pastor, the people who have been the nastiest to me in the church world are Reformed people. I learned that Reformed thinking, generally, they begin to miss the heart of God, which is people. Now, I got angry at him, I'm not going to lie. You ever have those moments where you, you get angry inside of that you don't let him see it? Oh, thank you, Doug. I really appreciate that. I'll take that into consideration. But inside, I'm like, what are you talking about? You need this, is what I'm thinking. You need this. I want to give him the... But the reality is, what I've learned, I'm not going to be down in Reformed theology, because I kind of lean that way. Some of you have kind of figured that out. What I've learned is it's not a Reformed thing. I understand why Reformed thinkers bend this way, but it's not a Reformed thing. It's a people thing. Do you know why? We love to be right. Oh, it feels so good. I'm right, and you're wrong. Say it again. I'm right, and you're wrong. We love it. Oh, it makes us feel so good. And so that's why anyone who holds it as book is saying, this is the very word of God. We're saying, we have the truth. We have it. Oh my goodness, we have it. And we want you to have it too. And we go out, we go out and we start sharing it with people and, and we fall in love with the truth. And I think our passion for truth is often only a passion for being right, not necessarily truth. So because this goes bad on us. Now, let's step in. So Paul says, love your neighbor is the greatest commandment. How about Jesus? How did he interact? How did he walk? After all, he came to reveal God to us. He came to make God accessible to people who were far away from God. Don't you need some level of truth? Don't you need some level of, to move in? Well, let's look at Jesus. Matthew chapter 9 is the classic teaching on this. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 and 36. It says this. Jesus traveled throughout all the towns and villages of the area. So this is kind of, this is laying out the story of how Jesus went about doing ministry. Jesus traveled throughout all the area, teaching. He's so, look at this, teaching. He's got some truth. 
He's, he's doing what I'm doing right now. He comes into the synagogue. This would have been on Saturdays. We now do it on Sunday. So he comes in. He opens up this, this scriptures, the scrolls, and he teaches. He gives truth and announcing the good news about the kingdom. So he's coming as proclaiming truth. He's telling us something. And, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had what? Turn to the person beside you. Just say compassion. Not whisper it. Say it. Go ahead. There you go. Thank you, Larry. Say it, man. That's compassion. He had compassion. Now, here's the cool thing about this word. I'm not a Greek scholar at all, but I'm, I'm, I start with English. Leaning into the Greek scholars who study this, this word tell us that this word is like having butterflies in your stomach. Have you ever had that experience? Still to this day, after all these years of preaching, when I come up here to do this, I still kind of get this nervous, sick feeling at times. Like it starts to churn. Do you ever have that? You're walking into a situation with someone you really care about and the stakes are high. It's, man, I've got to engage this person. I love this person. I'm for this person. And your stomach just starts to turn in knots. That's this word. So Jesus doesn't just say, I, I in theory, I have an idea. I'm going to say I love you. He says, no, my body is impacted. I had compassion on them. Now look at the cool thing about Matthew gives us a clue here. Because he had compassion because, why? Why do you have it? Because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, we're going to be very practical in times that we need to push into places uncomfortable. How do you see people? How do you see people? The people you engage with in your life, your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, your coworkers, the, the people in your life, how do you see them? The person that cuts you off in traffic. What a jerk! Or maybe they're late for work. They overslept. They may not be a jerk. They're just afraid of getting fired. But what do we do? What a jerk! Maybe they're confused, helpless, without a shepherd. This came home to me a few years ago. Um, as a pastor, one of the things you'll find, you talk to pastors, you hear this a lot. Uh, when, you, when you declare to people you're a pastor, for some reason, people think, oh, I can tell him my life story. I've had a lot of experiences out in public where I've had, I've had life stories shared with me, and, and I absorb that. I love it. I love taking on, listening, and walking with people. It's one of the things I love about being a pastor. Uh, I had this one individual um, that I'm, I was getting to know, and read, and I said, you're a pastor, Adam, so here it is. I'm going to give you the, the life story. And as I hear the life story, I hear about an extramarital affair. As I hear about the extramarital affair, as any time you sit with someone who's walked this road, what else do you hear about? A lot of pain, a lot of brokenness, a lot of history, maybe even abuse. You hear stuff. And the crazy thing was, just a week or two after this particular time, I'm, I'm running to someone else, and I'm running to this someone else, and this someone else says, hey, do you, you're, you're the pastor at, yeah, I am, do you know, and they rattle this other person's name off, and I'm like, yeah, I do know them. They are so aloof and cold. And I don't know why they felt the need to tell me that. I don't know this individual well at all. They don't attend Bethany. I'm like, why are you telling me that? And what I really wanted to say to them is, yeah, you'd be aloof and cold too if you had the story and lived in, and walked in the shoes they walked in. So I, went, I was got all, you ever get that indignant, feel like I was going to let them have it? But that's, I stepped back and thought, don't we all do it? You know, diagnosis determines how you treat someone. Hands down. How you diagnose something determines how you're going to treat it. 
That's why I love, I mentioned Reformed theology earlier, that's why I love my Reformed friends, because my Reformed friends hold on to something called the unfree will. In other words, every one of you in this room is the the argument that they make. Every one of you in this room is unfree in some area. You can't stop cussing. You can't stop drinking. You can't get your anger under control. You can't get your controlling personality under control. It keeps hurting people. You can't seem to get your codependency under control. You can't. There's something in your life that you can't seem to control. Now, the reality is when you believe in the unfree will to the very core, guess what you begin to do? It increases mercy. Do you know why? Because they're not free. But if I look at you as free, oh, you did that again. You chose wrong. Shame on you. You did this. That's why I love the unfree will, the teaching of it in Scripture. I love it. It actually increases mercy. It helps me begin to see people as confused, helpless, and without a shepherd. Monday morning practical stuff, I'd encourage you to step into people's stories. Walk with them. Listen to them. Get messy with them. We hate getting messy, don't we? We want to solve the tension and fix it. Get messy. Let them cry on you. Let them slobber all over your shoulder. Let them tell you about all the mess that they're in and stop judging. Well, if you do this and you change this, and of course you're this, just sit with them. Long-term perspective is crucial. You know 1 Corinthians 13? Many of you know it. Many of you know 1 Corinthians 13. Even if you're brand new to the church, you know why you know 1 Corinthians 13? Because it's in just about every person's wedding. Go ahead and quote it. Some of you know it. Love is patient. There it is. Stop right there. What's the first word on the love list? Love is, say it again, patient. (laughs) I love it. Paul opens up with that word. You know why I think he opens up with that word? If you're going to love someone, you better be in it for the long haul. It ain't going to happen overnight. You continue through the love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. You work through the passage and you get to the end of it, and I love how it ends. You're based on your translation, you're going to get different words, but love hopes all things. Love believes all things. Some of your translations say, um, love trusts always, always trust. Wow. Not, they cut me off because they're a jerk. No, they cut you off because they're late. They're doing the same thing you would do when you're late. Cut someone off in traffic. Step in, see people, listen to their stories, walk with them. Jesus does this over and over and over. Matthew 14, to name a few. When he feeds the 5,000, some of you know the story, right? Feeds the 5,000, breaks some fish and bread and spreads it up and they have quite a meal. Do you know what he does? The, the scripture records, Matthew 14, 14, it says he got out of the boat and he had compassion on them. Mark chapter 1, he heals a leper. Before he heals the leper, it says he was moved with what? Compassion. My favorite of all time is Mark chapter 10 when he engages a rich young man. This is the kind of guy that most of us dream of our daughters marrying. He's good. He's moral. He's a leader. He's young. He's, I don't know if he's good looking or not. Scripture doesn't say, but I'm picturing he is. And he comes and he comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? <laughs> Jesus engages him. He gives him some truth. He begins to wrestle with some stuff. The guy's like, but I've done all that, but I, but I still sense something's missing. So Jesus says, go sell everything, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. Before he gives him the truth of it, the text records he looked at him and loved him. He looked at him and loved him. Now here's what I want to 
10 minutes left here in the message. If you open with me, Matthew chapter 7. That's a good transition because Jesus gave that guy some truth. And some of you are sitting here going, Adam, I still have some truth. We still have the truth. I can't just walk with people and listen to people and let people cry on my shoulder and nod my head and smile and give them a hug and give them a high five and send them an encouraging email. Uh, Don't I got to step in at some level? Yeah, let's talk about that level and let's talk about what we do with truth. I wanted to set that foundation first because we can't step in. Here we go. Matthew chapter 7, page 804, and the Bible's there in the seats in front of you. Verse 1, this is, what's, this is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus has been teaching from chapter 5, and he continues through past this section here. It says this, verse 1, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Pause right there. We could park in that for this whole five weeks. That verse is loaded. And it's one that I'm going to be honest, I struggle with. And I think if, if you really want to be honest in this room and really be candid, I think most of us in this room struggle with this. I would say it this way. If you're in a relationship where you feel judged, I can never meet their standard. Their bony finger is always pointing at me. I'm always doing something wrong. May I offer a suggestion? Step back and take a look and ask the question, Am I judging them? I've heard it said that the passage, honor your father and mother. People say, well, my dad's not very honorable. Well, when you treat someone with honor, often they respond honorably. See the passage where wives are commanded in Ephesians 5 to respect their husbands. You say, my husband, you live with my husband? No, I ain't respecting him. Oftentimes when we respect, they respect, they respond in kind, respectfully. We get what we give, and we don't see it all the time. So Jesus opens up and says, listen, don't judge. Stop condemning. Stop walking around pointing everything out. The other thing I would say, too, with this one, you are a far more attractive person when you're defending others and not yourself. We look so much better when we're fighting for other people and not my own rights. We look so much better when I would say it this way, when we take undiluted responsibility for our failures. I'm a parent of children. This is a hard thing to teach. Yeah, well, I hit them because they hit me first, Dad. I did that because they took this. I did this because they did that. No, no, no. We're not talking about them. We're talking about you. I heard this illustrated. This was a number of years ago, uh, and I was trying to find the YouTube clip of it. I couldn't... the quality wasn't good, so I just left it out. But it's, it's a football illustration. The Seattle Seahawks, back when Jim Zorn was their coach, their kicker was Todd Peterson. It came down to the end of a game, uh, and the, for those of you who aren't familiar with football, there's a thing called a field goal. It's these big yellow posts. Have you ever seen them? That's, that's what they are. They're, you get the ball through that thing after a touchdown, you get one point. Uh, you get the ball through that thing, but before you score a touchdown, you get three points. So it's called a field goal. So, so um, this, this kicker, Todd Peterson, lines up all he's got to do is put the ball through, through those yellow uprights, and they win the game. And he goes off a champion. Well, guess what he does? He misses the kick. <laughs> and guess what the camera does? We love this. We sit and watch sports. Let's look at how he fails. As the camera zooms in on him, follows him all around, and he's walking around all dejected. He gets off into the locker room. He then ultimately comes out to the press conference, and they begin to talk to him. Now, in the press conference, in fairness to him, he takes, he takes uh, the responsibility he knew to take. 
He expressed a lot of disappointment in himself. I I should have made the kick. He has a lot of language. But then a reporter says, how about the snap? Well, he hints around. This is a hint. Well, yeah, the snap could have been better. It was a little off, a little to this, a little to the... How about the the hold? Yeah, well, Todd goes, the hold was, and he begins to talk about how the hold was. The coach pulls him in as the story is told. Um, The coach pulls him into his office the next morning, Jim Zorn, and says, hey, Todd, Coaches love to defend their players. They love it. But we can only do it when you take undiluted responsibility. Rather than defend yourself, rather than share the blame, take undiluted responsibility. Stop pointing out here. Now, continue. This is cool because this builds right into verse 3. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye? This this passage is always, as a kid, I used to hear this passage and think, this is weird. Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of the speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Now, this is just a funny passage to me. I brought a log along this morning. Now imagine, get this thing set here. So I see Dave, I actually took my glasses off, so I can't see Dave anymore, which makes this, which makes this illustration even richer. Um, so imagine I'm walking up to Dave, and I'm like, hey, Dave. Man, Dave, I can see you were working on wood last night because you got some sawdust there, Dave. I mean, it's right here in the corner. You want to take care of that? I mean, that's, yeah, thanks, Dave. That's, man, I don't know, Dave. You just, you got, you're kind of messy when you work with wood. You, got, you wear safety glasses, Dave? You really should wear safety glasses. I'd encourage you to wear safety glasses. And all the while, I got this thing sticking straight out of my head. And Dave's looking at me like, dude, safety glasses. I think we should get you to the doctor. I mean, you got a plank in your, sticking out your head, Right. So that's what Jesus is saying. He says, how silly this is, but this is what we do. Hey, kids, get off your phones while we sit there. Right? We do it all the time. We call stuff out in others that we ourselves are guilty of all the time. Jesus says, stop it. Don't judge. Stop calling. Now, let me push in real quick here. Does that mean we can never confront someone? No. The scriptures tell you to walk with other believers in Jesus and confront them. It doesn't mean you never confront. Rather, you confront as a fellow traveler. You sit with them. You engage them. You get involved in their life. Let me give those of you who are in social media a little, this is a rule of thumb I've always worked with that I think is huge and would help us a lot on social media, a ton. We're going to talk a lot about social media throughout this series because it's, unfortunately, there's a lot of good on social media, but it has, it has its downfalls. If you are reading someone's post on Facebook, they're called your friend. On Instagram, you are following them. You think, well, they're my friend. I'm following them. I have the right to tell them that this idea that they have is just silly. Try and picture a nice British accent as I say that. I can't quite do that. My question would be, do you know them well? Well, yeah, they're my friend. I follow them. When's the last time you sat down together and looked eyeball to eyeball? Uh, Three months? You probably don't know them real well. Don't share your opinion. Keep it to yourself. If we would do that in social media, I think social media would clean itself up in a hurry. But we don't do that. 
Go to someone. Sit with them. Even in life, forget social media. Oh, I got to deal with this. I got to talk to them. When's the last time you talked to them? Oh, I saw them at Christmas. So that's, what, five months ago. Probably you're not the one to talk to them. Do you really love them? Are you really in their life? Are you really walking with them? Are you really engaged? Do you really know their story? Do you really know what they're dealing with? No. Zip the lips. Don't post. I'd encourage you to pray with people, not just for people. Really engage. Listen to someone's story. Verse (laughs) 6. But Adam, I have truth. I have the truth. I need to give them the truth. Jesus addresses it. Verse 6. Don't waste what is holy on what... Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. See little asterisks if you have the New Living Bible? that They put this asterisk in because the, the Greek is probably better translated, and they give it to you down below. Don't give your sacred things to the dogs. I love the way he says that. Don't throw your pearls to the pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. What does that mean? Well, let me say it this way. How many of you have, see, show me. How many of you have dogs? What did you do with your dog this morning? Probably. Good chance. If it's an inside dog, this is. What did you do with your dog this morning? Someone hollered out. You let it out. What else did you do? You gave it food, right? Why did you give it food? Well, because I don't want my trash can rummaged through until I get home. Some of you may have even given it a rawhide bone to keep it busy while you're gone. Right? You gave it kibbles and bits and you gave it a rawhide. Why did you give it kibbles and bits or imes or whatever it is you use? Well, because he gets hungry. Now, why didn't you say, oh, here, doggy, 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 here's a page of the Bible, a nice sacred thing. Oh, chewing that. Here, chewing that. Why didn't you do that for him? Well, it doesn't help him. How about a pig? Are any of you afraid of pigs in this room? Got one. One, one very wise person in this room. Let me ask this question. How many of you in this room are afraid of sharks? Come on, be honest. I'm, my hand's up. I got sharks, man. I get in that ocean. I'm like, did you know in a year's time, more people die from a pig attack than they do from shark attacks? But we love pigs. Oh, piggy, 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 you're so cute. Well, here's the deal. My grandfather was a pig broker. Now, pigs are quite intelligent animals, and they're actually very clean animals. There's some things that we kind of don't always understand about pigs, but pigs can be ferociously nasty. So I would, I would go with my grandfather to the stockyards down in Lancaster as he would sell his and broker his pigs, and he'd always say to me, Adam, you got to be, and any time they were transitioning pigs or moving from a fence, he made sure I was up on the train platform and away from down where the pigs were moving around because he was fearful for, he was concerned for my life. Pigs can be nasty. Now, why on earth would you give a pig a pearl? $1,000 pearl. What's a pig want with a pearl? Oh, here, piggy, piggy, piggy. Pearls don't nourish a pig. A hungry pig can be a nasty animal. Jesus' point is, give people what nourishes them. You have the truth, yes. But don't fix them. We're there to support one another, not just fix one another. Ask, is it wanted? You know the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? Pay attention. He came to Jesus. And then when he got to Jesus, he fell on his knees and begged Jesus for an answer. So Jesus gives him a pearl, something very sacred, something worth a lot, a ton. You know, let me tell it this way. Um, So is it helpful? Is it wanted? 
Am I speaking on a relational level? Can I affirm that? Let me give you one more. Jesus, why did Jesus, those of you who are familiar with the scriptures, why did Jesus teach in story form? He told parables, they were called, all the time. He always told a story. Now, when I ask this question to, um, don't answer it out loud, but when I ask this question to a room of Christ followers, I always get the same answer. You know what the answer is? So that people understand the truth better. And I say, no, wrong, that's not why he did it. Go this week and read Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. Jesus tells us why he does it. He says, I teach in stories because it hides, it hides, it hides the truth. Jesus, why would you hide the truth? Because it's a pearl. It may not nourish them. They may just trample and destroy it. It may not be what they need right now. I'm not here just to fix people. I'm here to be with. I came to be with Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Not God teaching us, fixing us. God with us. You've experienced this probably. Have you ever shared a prayer request in a, in a group of Christians, maybe a small group? Most people have done this, have experienced this. Yeah, would you pray for me? I had a really hard week at work. I've got this coworker. Man, they, they, we just, they seem to really hate me. And I, I step towards them. And you tell your story. You get all done. Next person goes to share. Before the next person shares, what do you hear? Well, hold on. Adam, have you ever considered? Or, or Adam, you know, just last week, I did this, and I had this, and, and this is what worked for me. Have you ever experienced that? Happens all the time in Christian sharing. It's why I love Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery says all the time, we're here to support one another, not fix one another. Sit and be with someone, not just come at someone. Fix someone. And here's where we're going to end. Got to get end, wrap up here. I want to come back to where we started. I want to give you something really practical for the next five weeks. I want to ask you to commit to something. Matthew chapter 9, this is the passage where Jesus says he, his stomach was turned to knots because he had compassion because he saw them as helpless. He saw them as, as confused, as sheep without a shepherd. Then he says this to his disciples. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Notice he doesn't say, go have compassion. Guys, go love people. Guys, go. He says, no, I want you to do something. Pray to the Lord who is in charge of the... What's that say? Don't miss this. Look at the person to your left or your right. right, We've done a lot this morning. Get a good look at him. Look at him really long and awkward. Just give him that long, awkward stare, right? Raise your eyebrow a little bit like... "Ah." Do you know who's in charge of that person? Who's in charge of that person? What's well, my wife? I am. Pfft. Wrong answer. I'll see you for counseling this week if you gave that answer. Who's in charge of that person? Who is it? The Lord. Not me. I don't care if that person's your child. God is in charge. You're not here to fix them. You're here to partner. Look at what it says. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest, who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers to walk with into his fields. Here's my challenge to us. Would you, for the next five weeks, I'm not here this morning to say, go get better. I'm not here to say, start having compassion on people. I hope that comes out of the next five weeks. For the next five weeks, I want to ask you, will you commit to praying this prayer? 
Will you commit to every single day for the next five weeks just to pray, God, send workers. God, send workers. Send workers to my workplace. Send workers to maybe a country that's laid in your heart. God, send workers to New Holland. Send workers to Lancaster City. Send workers to Reading. Send workers into the public school. God, send workers. Right now, if you're willing to commit to it, try and find a time where you can lock in. That's right, Adam. Every morning when I got out of bed, it's the first prayer I'm going to pray. Every morning, every night before I go to bed, it's what I'm going to pray. I'll pray with my husband. I'll pray with my wife. Or maybe you're saying, you know what? On the way to work, I'll pray that. You know what, Adam? On the way home from work, as I'm decompressing, after I, was, after I was vomited on all day long by these coworkers I can't stand, I will pray for that to get me in the right frame of mind till I get home. I don't care. Whenever you pray, just say, you know what? I'm going to commit to praying this prayer for the next five weeks. And I believe... Jesus knew what he was doing when he asked this. Just step back and watch what begins to happen around here if we would all covenant, covenant together to pray, send workers. Send workers. Send workers. As I wrap up, I want to end us with, something has gone terribly wrong when our passion for truth overrides our compassion for people. Something's gone terribly wrong. Jesus came to this earth to pay a price for you that you could not pay, to free you, has forgiven you so much. The natural result is to love much. Something has gone terribly wrong when our passion for truth overrides our compassion for people. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, thank you for truth. (laughs) Thank you for truth. Thank you that you've opened my eyes to truth. Thank you that you sent workers into my life that have walked with me, that have cared for me, that have loved me. God, my prayer is that every person in this room would have had that experience and would have people in their lives that they know they're not alone. They know there are people that love them. And God, where they're, where they're lacking that, God, would they, uh, man, I just I pray for them right now. Those in this room that feel alone and lost, God, would they start with an understanding of knowing that you are with them, that you are for them, but God, bring someone into their life that they can lean into and that can be with them, that can be God in the flesh in a lot of ways to them. God, I pray now um, for the next five weeks. I look forward to this series. It could be probably one of the most practical series we've ever preached, we've ever walked through. God, we live in a corrosive, a corrosive, disrespectful culture. Oh, man, I feel it every day. As I engage even, even as I coach football, as I walk with my teenagers, as I, as I scroll through social media, as I sit with people for lunch and breakfast, and God, I just, man, help us as a church to step into that world in a way that loves and makes a difference. God, and I pray for us as we pray. God, help us to commit to just praying for workers, praying for workers. God, send them. Flood, flood Eastern Lancaster County, flood Redding and Berks County, flood, flood this region with workers whose stomachs get turned when they see people. When stomachs begin to tighten up and God, people that don't judge and but people who are going to sit with, send workers. God, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.